we, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, working out and dealing with our, our bodies and fitness. And um, I tell patients all the time that, you know, part of being healthy and dealing with mental health and addiction disease um, is, you know, you got to eat properly, sleep properly and work out. And, um, you know, we all hear ads on the radio and our station all the time encouraging to join a gym. But you ever thought about the need to work out your mind? So actually, I have. Um, and my wife has encouraged me because I'm getting a little bit older. She's encouraging me to do things like we play Scrabble and we play board games and games where I have to use my brain uh, to actually think and make decisions. Um, and, you know, the, the, the thought about how to do that, how to train your mind, how, you know, like you get a trainer to lose some weight. You get a trainer if you want, work on your strength and, you know, feel good, look good, whatever. Where do you find someone to train your brain? Well, my next guest wants you to live your life and wants you to be a 10. Yeah, that's what he means. He wants you to be a 10. And how do you work out your mind? Joining me to talk about that right now is the owner and operator of The Mental Gym. His name is Corey Chadwick. He's the founder of The Mental Gym. Corey, thank you for joining us this evening. Hey, Yona. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Pleasure. What's a mental fitness and mindset, Coach? I love the, uh, I love the title, bro. Yeah, uh, we're all about working out your brain, right? Taking things really from good to great. So building the tools, building the mindset, building the skill sets um, to, to train your brain, to think a certain way, make decisions a certain way, so you show up and behave the way you want to and get the kind of results that you really want out of life. Yeah, generally people uh, in, my, in the world that I work in, as long as you're not getting high and drinking too much, you usually behave. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I get it. Um, so here's a, I, I mean, here's a question off the cuff. Um, how does how does a guy, you know, I know a lot of guys that open their own gyms, a lot of women that want to open their own gyms, people that want to open their own gyms and stuff. It's, you know, it's an obvious extension to your your desire and passion of working out. How does a guy like you decide that, you know what, I'm going to open a mental gym and I'm going to, I'm going to you know, put myself out there as a mental fitness and mindset coach? How did you get to that? Yeah, I mean, this started for me a long time ago. I would say as far back as high school. There were kind of two parts to this. One uh, I always felt like I had potential growing up. You know that feeling like you've got potential, but you don't know what to do with it or what direction to point yourself in. Um, school doesn't necessarily help you figure that out. So I always had this real need to work on myself, uh, just try to be a better version of myself and, and realize that potential. That was always important to me. Uh, mental well-being came on my radar uh, around the same time. My mother suffered from mental illness. No one really talked about it at that point, right? There was a lot of stigma about it, and it was a pretty quiet conversation, but um, unfortunately we lost my mom to mental illness and I was, I was scared that this was genetic, that this was coming for me too. Yeah. And so I decided, well, I can't do nothing about this. I've got to be proactive. Uh, at the time I was a psych major. I always, I was always so interested in how we think and make decisions and why we do the things that we do. And so just a little bit at a time, I started rewiring my brain, just kind of upgrading how I thought and made decisions and behaved one little adjustment at a time, one small improvement at a time. Um, and really over time, these two, these two focuses or passions of mine to, to be the best version of myself and also to take great care of my mind. Uh, those two just came together and became the same thing. Um, I'll kind of fast forward in that journey a little bit, but it was like puzzle pieces were coming together. Dots were connecting and people started really taking notice. And eventually I started sharing what I was developing with other people. And they were seeing incredible transformations in their lives and their businesses and then with their families. And I was always just looking for the, the best way to share this with people. And then one day uh, I was in the middle of a CrossFit class and 
uh, the yeah. light bulb went off, right? We have yeah. these gyms for our bodies. Yeah, exactly. We need this for our mind. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Corey Chadwick. He's a mental fitness and mindset coach. He's the founder of the mental gym. Corey, um, Sadly, I knew your mom. I know the story. I know your family. I know your dad um, since I was a kid. Uh, so, um, again, my, my, my thoughts go out to you and your family all the time when hearing that story. Uh, but you know what? From darkness, we get light, right, bro? And uh, so clearly, so you've, uh, you've electrified yourself to a point where you're able to get out there. So I got a, couple, I got, you know, a bunch of questions here, and we're going to have you on for a couple of segments. But when you talk about, you know, I lit myself, you know, kind of the light went off, and, and I was working on your – where – how were you? What, what was kind of the 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 the, the, um, the, the modus operandi, or, the, or how were you training your brain? Where were you getting? Who was your mental gyms, uh, your mental coach, so to speak? Yeah, uh, actually, in kind of a strange way, it was my mom and and it was my dad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Seeing when things don't go well, quite frankly, gives you a perspective, and you get to see yeah. what's not working and why it's not working, and. And kind yeah. of understand the um, kind of the thought processes, the principles that are kind of at work, and like, okay, you're doing it this way, but I, you know, like really happy people are doing it this way, but you're doing it this way. Um, and I would just, I was fascinated by that. I had some great case studies, like right there in my life, that that really yeah, no got me going, thinking this way. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I think even when I was like younger, my dad was a lawyer, and he'd challenging me to think differently and, and see different perspectives. And he'd, he'd just, he'd always play devil's advocate with me because I loved to think and I loved yeah. the challenge. I, like, I really enjoyed that. And uh, I think just a combination of all that really your dad would have been just the right guy to uh, to play uh, to play main brain games with for sure. So how, how do you how do you exercise your brain? Let's get to let's get to the program. Um, mm-hmm. How do you actually exit? I mean, the program that you run. How do you actually exercise your brain, brother? Yeah, so we we have like group classes. So the same way you'd go to like I mentioned CrossFit or like a spin class yep. or a yoga yep. class, like this, this group model. So you're in a group class together. We do this live over Zoom, and the idea is we we challenge you to think, kind of like the way my dad did to me, right? We challenge you to think, and we challenge you to think differently. We're working on different concepts that help you be better versions of yourself. So we're kind of putting together personal development with proactive mental well-being and performance challenging you to think and see different perspectives. We discuss certain concepts and kind of look at them in different ways, really taking big ideas and breaking them down into super small parts. And the idea is when you're engaging with these concepts and, and thinking about how they apply to your life and how you can use them to improve yourself. Again, I'll go back to that one small adjustment at a time, one little improvement at a time. And you just keep doing that like week in and week out, making one small improvement, one small adjustment. And it really creates a compounding effect. It adds up and adds up and adds up. But the idea is to keep your mind in that mode of always improving, always challenging yourself, always being better, um, really paying attention to how you think and why you think a certain way and then why you make choices and decisions the way you do and being really intentional about that, giving you the tools to do it and uh, and just applying it to your life. So, you know, but... Yeah, yeah are we talking about an actual exercise? I mean, I don't want to jump in, but I got so many questions to ask you here, bro. Um, <laughs> the, the, are we talking about actual, like, an actual exercise plan for your brain, or just you're challenging people to think more clearly, to think more attentively, <clears throat> to be more, excuse me, more focused on, on what's on their mind? Like, what's the exercise itself like, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, we call them workouts. And, and that's okay, exactly what's the workout like? It works for me. Yeah, what's the workout like? Yeah, yeah, so, what's the workout like? 
again, we'll kind of start with like a simple concept of just, it can be anything. We can be talking about accountability. We can be talking about honesty. We can be talking about why we take things personally and get triggered. We can talk about respect, I mean, vulnerability. I can go on and on and on with the amount of things that, that we work on in, in the gym. And the whole idea is, hey, see this concept? Like, this is how people who are really crushing it in life do it. And this is how people who aren't crushing it in life do it. Where are you on this scale? Like, let's say this scale from one to 10, where do you want to be? How can we start thinking about it a little bit differently? And we'll just ask really engaging, challenging questions to get you to think and then get a, there's, there's that discussion. So you get to learn from the trainer, but you also get to learn from each other. These different perspectives from amazing people from different walks of life. And, um, and you're really just, again, just challenging your brain and seeing different perspectives. And as you notice how you think, you get to be really intentional about how you think and just uh, really keeping you in that, in that mode. In, our, uh, in my practice, obviously, you know, people sign up for my virtual business or for our inpatient programs, and they all ask the same thing. You know, what are, what's the background of your, of your therapist, so to speak? So in your, in your case, what's the background of your trainers? Uh, are they certified? Are they, are they, are they uh, trained in a way to actually do the training, or is this kind of like a, an entrepreneurial thing that's kind of uh, working as it works with not, without a lot of uh, sort of uh, structural support in terms of uh, training, um, degrees, diplomas, and such? How, how do you answer that? We got less than like less than a couple of minutes here yeah so uh, you know coaches with with good good track record like i'm not a therapist i'm not a psychologist I, that, that's not it it's 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 really having developed this you mentioned that entrepreneurial thing it's a huge part of it but using a lot of science around it yeah. to support it to to this is why this works how can we share this with people in a way that engages them that is and that they genuinely enjoy like it's fun to work on yourself and do this this way so that you keep doing it so that you you put the consistency in and, and really make it a sustainable thing in your life. Uh, real quick, before we go to break, and then uh, I understand you're going to stick around, so you'll come back. That'd be great. Sure. Uh, what type of person, uh, like what kind of person? Is it a guy like me? Like what kind of guy like your dad? Who's in the gym? Yeah, it's generally like smart, ambitious people who just want more out of life. They're yeah. checking a lot of boxes and things are good, but they know that there's more. They want more out of life. They want more out of themselves. They, you know, and um, that, that's a big part of it. And uh, also innovative organizations, teams, leaders, like that's, that's who we're working with. So uh, if you're just joining in here, I'm talking with Corey Chadwick. He's a mental fitness and mindset coach, the founder of The Mental Gym. We're going to continue with him as soon as we come back from break. I think he's going to teach us how to get from a 7 to a 10. If he can make me look better and get rid of my stomach at the same time, he'll be a superhero. <laughs> Fix my head and my gut at the same time, Corey Chadwick. We'll be right back. On the road to recovery, this is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Toronto, thanks for checking us out. We're glad you did. We just love you guys, and uh, it means so much to us when you tune in and participate. So thanks for doing that, and hope you're having a cool weekend for sure. Uh, I'll tell you how you get to a great weekend. You chime in right now because I'm talking to Corey Chadwick. He's a mental fitness and mindset coach and the founder of something called The Mental Gym. Exciting and Exciting, exciting program. Uh, Corey, glad that you can stick around. Thanks for uh, being here. Um, you know, a, a lot of you know, people say for years, years, people would say, have a nice day. You know, have a nice day. Um, you know, help, hope you have a good weekend. Hope, you know, right. So I, you know, about, about three years ago, four years ago, I started to cone the expression, you know, make it a great day. You know, right. have a great day. Uh, you don't have a great day. You know, you don't have an any kind of day. It's a day that you make, right? So, uh, leading into my next question, young man, why do you think so many people 
are okay with a good life instead of a great life? Why do we settle for, eh, it's all right, it's fine, I, I, I'm not looking for great, the steak is fine, I'm not looking for great. Why do so few people think they can get to great? Yeah, it would great question <laughs> that's why i have a radio show good right yeah that's why um I, I think a huge reason is that we're we're kind of surrounded by not great we're surrounded by people who also accept this is my life this is the way it is i'm doing well enough i'm checking the boxes i'm successful by the definition of success that i learned growing up and i learned in my neighborhood and um so you know things things are good and I think the other thing is with sometimes when we think about great, we have this like weird idea of what great means. We yeah. think of like greatness and, you know, leading an army or winning a gold medal or something like that. And it's like, no, 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 we're talking about personal greatness. Like what would be great for you? What would, what would your great life be like and your great version of yourself? Um, so one, I would just say people, you know, we're surrounded by a certain thing and a certain think and a certain kind of mentality. And the other thing is we don't know how to get from here to there. We don't know how to do it. We don't know what steps to take. We don't know who to trust. And when you put all those pieces together, you kind of just stay stuck where you are and say, yeah, this is good. I'm happy here. Even though deep down, you know, you know, you're not quite satisfied. You know, I have, uh, I have people and I have a, uh, a, a um, coaching and uh, leadership practice, uh, which I do in the mornings from nine until one. And then I see patients from one until seven. I kind of break it up. So not everybody's telling me about jumping off a bridge and, uh, or wanting to jump off a bridge. Just give me a break. Um, and you know, I, I talk to a lot of, you know, I work with a lot of very sick, but you and I wouldn't, I guess maybe you wouldn't, um, but most would call a very successful person, right? Making hmm. money, uh, you know, ex, you know, mid, you know, middle six figure income, family, you know, life, a cottage, children, everything going for them and they're miserable. Yeah. And, you know, and when you say to them, you know, like, you know, what, what's important to you and they've already achieved like the material stuff. Um, they seem to have achieved what looks like on the outside, the familial structure that everyone going to go, wow, nice looking family, uh, has the two cars, the cottage and the home in downtown Toronto, but miserable. How do you, how do you, how do you help someone who from the outside looks like they're greatly successful, but on the inside, they're just not checking, as you would say, not checking any of the boxes? Yeah. I mean, this is a lot of people, like you said, you work with them, I work with them. Um, and I wouldn't say that I necessarily work with people who are miserable, but, but people who are, you know, somewhere on that, that spectrum of not being as happy as they want to be. One of the first things I'll ask them is, what do you want? And they'll say almost always, I want to be happy. Yeah. It's like, well, where do we actually learn how to be happy? We probably didn't. And we thought that, well, doing all the things that they're doing is going to lead to happiness. And it doesn't, right? It just doesn't. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't yeah. make yeah. money and, and have yeah. cars and stuff, but it's like, it's I not the you. answer. So, so you gotta, you gotta prioritize in life. Like, what do you actually want? Are you going to prioritize your happiness, your fulfillment, the, the kind of relationships that you want, the, the, that sense of self-satisfaction, that, that pride in your life, like, I'm doing this right. You know, if you're not going to prioritize it, it's not going to happen. Like you said before, you create the day, right? You don't just have it. You create this for yourself. But you got to decide that you want that for yourself. You know what, Corey? Um, I, it's interesting because uh, I, when I do an assessment, I, I, we ass- I assess every patient that is in any of our practices, uh, usually ahead of time, just to make sure it's a fit and we're going to be successful for both for both of us, right? Uh, mm-hmm. you know, so one of the things I will say to them is, okay, imagine that I'm your fairy godfather and I'm waving a magic wand and I give you three wishes. Don't wish for money. Don't wish, look for, wish for a hot girl or a hot guy or whatever you're looking for. I can't give you those things, but give me, you know, tell me your three wishes. 
And brother, nine out of ten don't wish for happiness. Why is that? What are they wishing for? Well, they're wishing to stop drinking. They're wishing to have better relationships with family. They're wish wishing they can get a better job. You know, like you know, get their license back. You know, you can imagine, right? Uh, but very few in in my therapy. It's again in my therapy practice. Very few say um, I want to be happy. Where mm. and and you know what? I, I, I'm sure you get similar responses. I don't think people either people take happiness for granted. I think or yeah. they just don't know what that's like to achieve how do you help them get around that yeah they don't well what i point out to people is those things that they're saying that they do want more money better job this thing that thing it's all to be happy the reasons that we want what we want and do what we do and make the choices and decisions that we do is because we hope they'll help us be happy so right. why not just understand that that's the motivation and kind of skip to that all right well instead of just kind of assuming we know how to do that why don't we just pay attention to let's learn how to be happier um and that's like, it, it's a huge mindset shift. It's a small thing, but that, that shift really changes a lot. Um, you know, in some ways, we're just not as self-aware as we want to be and need to be. And, and you know, that's okay, but we need to become more self-aware and, and, uh, and understand kind of what makes us tick. Are you living a great life? I, I sure believe so, yeah. <laughs> Good boy. Glad to hear that. Um, how do you help somebody? Uh, we got a couple of minutes left here. I really want to get to some of the meat. Uh, how do you help someone you know, who's kind of hovering, like I said, you know, above average, kind of the seven or eight, but how do you move them to that 10? I, I'm excited to hear from my own, my own benefit. How do you, not that I'm a seven, but um, I don't think I'm a 10 either, just so you know, uh, but uh, maybe I'm okay being a nine, right? Uh, but yeah. the, the, the question is, how does someone move that, that needle when it's close to the end? I, I get the, I get the three to seven or the three to sure. three to six or three to eight, but when you're closer to the end, how do you, how do you push through that last little piece? Well, I think there's different pieces, right? There's certain things that get you to seven and then certain things that get you stuck at seven um, by doing the same things. You know, okay. we, we got to shift the focus to things like our own personal development and becoming that version of ourselves that deep down we believe we could be. We got to start focusing on the motivation, the, the contribution that we could make by doing that, how we show up for other people, kind of like a sense of purpose, although it doesn't need to be exactly, you know, a, a purpose statement or something like that. Right. And really having the greatest quality relationships we can, especially with the people who matter most to us. And when you can really just change your focus from what you're focusing on now to that, you see how much it shows up in your life and how many uh, opportunities every single day you have many, many opportunities to make little decisions, little choices that point you in that direction. We, we kind of live by this motto of living year 10. It's 10 is not perfect, but it is your best. And so every decision we make goes through the same filter, 10 or not 10. You're not really choosing 10 or 7, 10 or 8, 10 or 6. It's just 10 or it's not 10. Everything else is not 10. Um, and when you, when you think that way, when you, you just start to approach things differently and hold yourself to a bit of a higher standard in things that really do matter most, which also actually helps you show up at a higher level than the other things that you want to show up at anyway, which is really nice how that works. Right. It's not like you're trading off your career, trading off your, exactly. your money or something like that. Like you get all of it, which is really great. Um, but yeah, that's what we do. And again, just a little bit at a time, little shifts. That consistency is huge. Community is huge. Guidance is huge. Accountability is huge. But you put those things together and uh, you transform a life. 
tell you, if you're looking to get your head straight, get your head on right, you want to get from uh, that, uh, oh, you know, sort of happy, but maybe not really get to that super joyful stage, you know, that uh, knocking it out of the park. How's your day going? I'm having a great day. Uh, sometimes I say that to people and I feel guilty about it. I think that maybe I'm smoking something uh, or, you know, whatever. Uh, but I'm actually, you know, having a great day. But for me, it starts with putting my feet on the ground and uh, having a breath, and that's kind of enough sometimes. Uh, but I am talking to Corey Chadwick. He is a mental fitness and mindset coach, the founder of the Mental Gym. I assume you can. How do people find you online, Corey? Uh, mentalgymlife.com is the website. Um, you can, if you want to get in touch, shoot an email to hello at mentalgymlife.com. Uh, kind of two great ways to learn more and, and talk about us and uh, or talk with us. And I, I, I'd love to have that conversation. Hey, maybe we'll have you come back some other time, eh, Corey? I'd like to talk more about this and just see how it's all going. Uh, I'm talking to Corey Chadwick, mental fitness and mindset coach, founder of The Mental Gym. Check him out. I'm, uh, I'm certainly going to. When we come back, we're going to talk. Yona Bud, Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. If you're just tuning in, this is a show about people helping people and us helping people and everyone helping one another, and it's just a big help fest. By the way, if you ever need to get a hold of me, you can do that by sending a message to road to recovery at 640toronto.com or get a hold of me at 877-777-5808. We'd be glad to talk with you and help in any way that we can. Talking about Ottawa being urged to label alcohol after report links moderate use to increased risks, risks, uh, risks excuse me, of cancer and other fatal illnesses. So this is something we need to pay attention to, to be, uh, to be at a low risk of suffering negative acute and or long-term health outcomes from drinking. Uh, the CCSA's report says a person should consume on average zero to two standard drinks each week. So drinking three beers a week increases your risk of developing breast or colon cancer while sipping a daily glass of wine can make you more likely to develop heart disease and increases your chance of having a stroke. You paying attention, right? And uh, according to a new report highlighting the risks of moderate alcohol consumption, the report published on Monday by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, CCSA, examined several studies and said that they show strong links between moderate to heavy alcohol use and some fatal illnesses including cardiovascular disease and a number of cancers. On the uh, phone waiting to chat with us is Dr. Tim uh, Nemi. He's the director of the University of Victoria's Canadians Institute for Substance Use Research. Uh, Dr. Naimi, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So it's nice to be here. It's a pleasure. Uh, so you good with Dr. Naimi or Tim? What would you prefer? Tim is great. <clears throat> my, oh, good. That's my, perfect. My late, my late father was Dr. Naimi, but I'm just Tim. That's what people say, you know, and they call me Mr. Bud. I said, my 96-year-old father's Mr. Bud, until he's uh, no longer around, I'm just Yona. So, okay, Tim, welcome. It's great to hear that, you're, that your dad is still Dr. Naomi. Um, he's, proud, he's proud, I'm sure, that you're his son carrying it on. So, listen, um, this whole study about, yep. uh, you know, I deal in addiction, you deal in addictions, you know, we do, both deal with patients constantly. Uh, this report is... Um, Somewhat surprising to me because there used to be there used to be this thing of you know daily glass of yeah. wine was good for you. So what's what's the real the real shinny? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know people who drink a lot or heavy drinkers, whatever we want to call them, and and not all of them, by the way, are in recovery or have an alcohol use disorder even. But Correct. heavy drinking accounts for most of the problems. But at the lower levels of consumption, alcohol used to have a bit of a health halo, and that halo has uh, fallen off in the past. 10, 15 years. 
And uh, what we know now is that the risks, um, you know, from from alcohol have been uh, a bit uh, even underestimated, particularly at the lower levels of consumption. Yeah. So what we this is a study that we basically these are the new Canadian guidelines. They're being they they were just released for a public comment period, but basically. The latest science is that the risk of, of death from alcohol starts to go up after just two drinks a week, which is a surprisingly low number. Surprisingly for you, too? Well, not to me, because, again, when uh, the, the, a lot of the evidence around the um, some pr- protective effects at low levels for the heart have kind of uh, been greatly weakened. So, yeah, and, and even before, though, uh, Yona, the study showed that basically the even for people who drank alcohol, that the risk of, of, of death from an alcohol-related cause began to increase over just half a drink a day on average. And we found something even a little bit less than that, like two drinks per week. But the bottom line is, is that for anyone who's listening, and it doesn't matter how much you drink, but basically the simple message is if you drink, letter, if you drink less, that's going to be better for, for health. And you said something on the on the outside here, Tim. Uh, if you're just t- yeah. tuning in, by the way, I'm talking to Dr. Tim Naimi. He's the director of the University of Victoria's Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. Uh, <clears throat> we're calling him Tim, so we're talking to Tim. Um, and 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 we're t- so um, for just for the record here, a standard drink is defined as a unit containing eight to twenty grams of alcohol. That's about half a shot well, to a shot of well, no, half no, actually, whiskey. A, a unit, a, a Canadian standard drink. Yeah. It's pretty much the same as an American standard drink. It's for, for those who are counting at home, 14 grams of ethanol, which is basically the amount of ethanol in a 12-ounce beer or a 5-ounce glass of wine or a shot of, of uh, liquor. So okay. the, those are all contained about 14 grams. So, okay. so that's what a standard drink is. And the risk of, of death actually starts to increase above uh, two stand, just two standard drinks per week. Interesting, eh? Um, so, so the the you said something on the outset though that's not we're not yeah. talking about people that have a substance use disorder. We're just talking about people who drink, you know, a couple, three, four drinks a week. Um, how does this? Uh, the, the, go ahead. Yeah. Now, yeah. When I wanted, to, yeah. Go ahead, Yona. Sorry. No, what I was going to say is, Tim, that um, you know, the, the, let's let's focus on people. You know, there's a lot of people listening in that are, you know, perhaps younger. Uh, they're into, you know, kind of binge drinking, if you will. So that yeah. means, you know, Friday and Saturday night they go hard, but they don't drink the rest of the week, and they think that, you know, they're okay. Uh, they're not, are they? Well, no. There's two things with that. One is that even their total drinks are again we're the whole purpose of these guidelines is is actually we want to inform Canadians we're not we're not putting one guideline out like there has been in the past we're merely pointing out that there's a continuum of risk which is what the science has showed for a long time but yeah binge drinking if you binge drink a couple nights a week uh first of all binge drinking puts you at very high risk of a lot of things uh sexual assault being a victim of sexual violence you know car crashes child all kinds of problems right so that's binge drinking is a, is a whole separate thing that has to do with your pattern of consumption Correct. and even if you binge drink twice in a week i mean that's 10 drinks so that's put you at uh, increasingly high risk of chronic diseases down the line like cancer or heart disease but the main thing with binge drinking is that it makes you impaired it it predisposes people to violence and to, you know injuries and that sort of thing 
You know, it's interesting because um, I remember years ago I developed uh, diverticulitis and uh, huh. talking to my talking to my doctor about uh, you know the things I did and things I didn't do. <laughs> we don't even want to get into diet because he didn't like any of that. But um, and he said to me, "Do you drink?" I says, "You know, I, I'm you know I'm an act I'm active in my Jewish community. I'm in the synagogue on weekends. I have a couple of shots, you know, here and there with my with my buddies. But you know, it's usually just Friday night and Saturday, just a little bit." And he said, "Yona, you're better off to have a drink every day." Than having shots like that um, in 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 bulk periods because it's harder on the system. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Well, in general, yes. For any for any amount that you consume, uh, and again, less is better. But for any amount that you consume, yeah, you're better spreading it out uh, over the longest period of time possible. Well, just for the record, for those listening in, I heeded his call and don't drink very much at all, if ever. Uh, primarily, <laughs> yeah. I didn't. Ha- I don't have a substance issue. Certainly not with alcohol, anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, but anyway, so so. You know, one thing that, I should but, mention is that yeah, most people please. who drink drink in ways that can be risky or unhealthy are not don't have an alcohol. You know, aren't alcoholics. I think that's a really important distinction to make because yeah. Yeah. Even among us doctors, right, for the longest time, we've been like, oh, okay, well, the person's not an alcoholic. Or what's the first thing that, you know, if someone says to us, hey, I think you drink too much or I'm worried about you, we say, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. Well, whether one is or not, I mean, the, the bottom line is a lot of people drink in, in sort of risky or unhealthy ways who aren't an al- alcoholic. And I think, um, and, and uh, you know, binge drinking, I should have mentioned another thing is that it, it increases your risk of, of, uh, of alcoholism later on. So it's good to keep in mind the full spectrum of consumption, and that's what we're also trying to do here with these new guidelines, is not just to speaking to people who are deciding, well, should I have three drinks a week or two, or, or we're, and we're not just trying to speak to the people who are having 20 drinks a day either. We're, we're kind of trying to want to speak to the whole spectrum and, and encourage everyone to kind of learn more and, and drink a little less, and, and uh, that, that's the basic idea. Yeah, the the part of this whole article kind of talks about Ottawa being urged to label alcohol. You know, when uh, when marijuana when marijuana first came out as a recreational product, I'm sure you were like me. You were like you know kind of concerned to see how that's going to turn out. And then the labeling on labeling on marijuana products, cannabis products, whether they're edibles or smokables or oils or whatever, uh, it tells you. You know, the this yeah. much is this much is when you get with alcohol. There's nothing. Yeah. It just tells you how much alcohol. So are well, you? I, I like the idea of labeling. What about you? Yeah. Well, I'm a. I'm, yeah. I, I, I stand behind our report, and I, so we all really feel like labeling is important. First of all, philosophically, right? We're trying to move away from this idea of telling Canadians what to do. We want to inform them what to do. But you can't yeah. inform people with no information on the label, right? So you make a great point. I mean, alcohol, you know, cannabis and tobacco, you know, the Canadian government is actually pretty good on those in terms of labeling, even by international standards. But guess what? There's a big old, um, big old nothing for alcohol, right? There's no information. And I like to joke with people, you know, if I have a can of open, go to the grocery store and buy a can of peas, I know how many milligrams of calcium are in my gram of, of, you know, my can of peas. But I don't know how much, you know, I don't know how many standard drinks are in my, my bottle of whiskey, and I have no idea that it's a carcinogen, and I have no idea that alcohol is calorie-dense. I don't know how many calories are in it. So it's, it's ridiculous. And even for my can of peas, it tells me, you know, how many ounces is a serving size, and it doesn't tell you that on the bottle of whiskey. So it's just a glaring double standard. Um, it's ridiculous for, uh, you know, again, many of us uh, enjoy alcohol or don't enjoy alcohol, but it's a legal substance. But this idea that something that's as, um, 
you know, as uh, can be as harmful as alcohol, doesn't have essentially has no information, and a can of peas has, you know, all the information. The whole you half need. the label is telling you what's in it. Is <laughs> just you know, it's, it's kind of obvious. I don't need to say more. Thank you for joining us. This, I'm talking here with Dr. Tim Naimi. He's the director of the University of Victoria's Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, and uh, definitely we'll have some him have you have him come back on another time and uh, talk about stuff related to uh, you know the kind of research he does and how it helps other people. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones? If not, probably uh, if you're worried about them, you need to call 911 and uh, just connect, maybe a phone call, a text message. Make sure everybody's okay. It's Saturday night on a long weekend. All kinds of crazy stuff can happen, right? And speaking of long weekends and Saturday night, are you out there tipping a few beers back? Maybe even having a real nice drink on one of the mini patios here in Toronto. It's a great place to be out socializing on a Saturday night. But come on, get close to the get close to the radio. It's just between you and me right now. Come on, shh, shh, get close. So seriously, between you and me, are you drinking more than you used to? No, 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 no come on, straight up. Nobody's going to hear. Are you drinking a little more than you used to? And and would you, you think that if the government put a label on your booze about how much to drink or the dangers of drinking or anything about drinking like they do with your weed and they do with your food products, like our previous guest was talking about, do you think it would help? Has your drinking have your drinking patterns changed in the past few years? I know some people have increased their drinking. I know a lot of people who have decreased their drinking. I know a lot of people are trying to get well around their drinking and some of their substance issues. Maybe we can just include, you know, smoking a little extra weed, maybe chewing a few extra gummies. That's what we're talking about here. But in particular, we're talking about labeling alcohol here in Ontario so that you know what the hell is in it. Right? Forget about, you know, the dangerous stuff. How about just the calorie count? How do you do that? How do you know what the calorie count is? Each bottle, each beer, each kind of whiskey, tequilas, you know, there's 18 different kinds of fabulous tequilas out there. They all have something different. Same with whiskey, same with wines. Oh my gosh, there's sections and sections of wine. You know, I'm not an aficionado, so to speak. Uh, I know people that are. They spend tons of time shopping and looking and going through the opportunities to buy different various things but they look at the year they look at the at where they're from the, the you know the the the, uh, the the i guess the lineage of the of the wine itself the grapes but there's nothing on the bottles or the packages that tell you what the hell's in it they don't say things like three to six drinks per week put someone at moderate risk of negative health conditions Six or more standard drinks per week puts a person at higher risk. So the numbers change slightly based on your body weight and your physiology, okay? So while men and women showed no overall difference in premature death, men are able to consume more drinks on average than women before suffering other serious health, health outcomes, including liver damage. So high-risk drinking amongst women, needless to say, has severe effects on reproductive health, Public health, health experts have advised that for decades against alcohol consumption during pregnancy because adverse effects of fetal exposure include brain injury, behavioral problems, and learning disabilities. So if you're having a beer or two while you're pregnant or a glass of wine while you're pregnant or smoking a joint while you're pregnant, just to get to that, not good for the fetus, man. Smoking anything, not good for the fetus. As well, recent uh, research shows moderate to high-risk alcohol consumption can affect a woman's overall fertility and ovulation cycle, 
potentially complicating the ability to become pregnant. I, 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 I have, I would say on average, once every month or two, I have someone joining my practice as a patient um, who are dealing with who are you know are dealing with issues around fertility, infertility, and so on. Um, never thought to ask if they've been drinking, uh, but now I will. Um, as we're trying to help them through the depression and the anxiety about trying to get pregnant, it can be really, really, really tough on a person. Um, but anyway, the whole philosophy behind the whole philosophy behind the project is that people have the right to know to make informed decisions, according to Dr. Peritis, uh, who adds that the recommendations or on, la- on labels are not intended to deter people from drinking. So, like Dr. Tim uh, Naomi, who uh, is the director of University of Victoria's. Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, that the intent of the researchers and the experts, including myself, not to deter people from drinking necessarily. Not everyone has a drinking problem. Not everybody has a weed problem. Not everybody has a cocaine problem. They can do a line or two and move on. I don't know, I guess. Um, most can't, but many can. Um, but it's more about knowing what the heck is in the booze and what, what a good standard drink is. So, you know, it would be nice to know that there's a caution around, you know, drinking alcohol to a point of excess such that it has a negative impact on people's health in a serious, serious way. Some research highlighted in the report shows that labels have a deterrent deterrent effect on high-risk drinking, which is the the intent here. The study from Whitehorse, Yukon, they surveyed more than 2,000 people who visited a single liquor store where alcohol products had labels for standard drinks and a cancer warning. And they found that sales for the labeled alcohol dropped 6.6%. So here you go. If you're the alcohol and gaming folks and you're trying to increase the number of people drinking because you want more alcohol revenue, labeling the boxes is probably not going to be a good choice. But if you're interested in people's wellness and health above and beyond profit, it's clearly the way to go. Other studies have found that alcohol health labels led to 10% increase in the ability to recall cancer risks and a 50% increase in being able to recall low-risk drinking guidelines among consumers. So alcohol consumption in Canada is associated with sleep health and economic costs. Excuse me, in 2017, according to the CCSA report, alcohol contributed to 18,000 deaths in Canada. In that same year, $5.4 billion was spent on health care related to alcohol consumption. Did you hear what I just said? 18,000 people died in Canada from alcohol-related illness. 5.4 billion of our taxpayer dollars was spent on healthcare related to alcohol consumption. Although the CCSA report examines the role of alcohol in issues such as intimate partner violence, um, they, the studies remain unresolved as to how to address its relationship with mental health. Unfortunately, we're unable to find evidence that satisfied the very, very high quality criteria we set ourselves uh, to use for this project, according to the doctors in charge, noting that Australia faced a similar problem when reviewing its alcohol guidelines in 2016. So what we're talking about now is, um, does Canada have a drinking problem? I don't think so, but I think the problem is, why alcohol is the new cigarette. So according to 2020, uh, 2020 report uh, from the National Health uh, and Medical Research Council in Australia, 
A systemic review of research found no reliable evidence to support a casual relationship between alcohol consumption and almost every mental health issue, with limited evidence of association between alcohol consumption and worsening bipolar disorder. So as far as I'm concerned, I've treated thousands of patients in the years I've been doing what I do, and I can tell you that if you are have an unstable mental, unstable mental health, depression, anxiety, you know, uh, bipolar, anything on the bipolar scale, anything in terms of uh, personality disorders and so on. Alcohol, and if you're clearly, if you're taking any kind of medication for that, any kind of mood stabilization or blood stabilization medication, um, it's not going to work well if you pollute it with alcohol. So it's imperative that people understand that alcohol has the ability to um, not only uh, have a negative impact on us physically and uh, mentally, but moreover, if you're on any kind of medication, the first thing it says on the bottle is don't consume alcohol while taking this medication. Why do you think it says that? Right? Because there's a dilution process. Alcohol acts as a, as a, to dilute the benefit of many of the chemicals that are in the, the alcohol that are in the medications that we take and alcohol provides that kind of um, uh, dilution factor. If you, you know, if you have a drink of alcohol, you have a drink of beer, have a beer uh, some, sometime through the day and you're on, you know, Ciprolex or, or any of the mood stabilization medications, um, it, it just dilutes it, right? Same with any medication that you take for any illness, like, for example, an, an antibiotic, right? So this says clearly if you're on an antibiotic, taking an antibiotic, do not consume alcohol. It says that for a reason, right? But the idea of labels, the idea of having information on our products that we consume, every product we consume, whether it's a can of peas like Dr. Tim says, or whether it's the weed you're chewing, smoking, eating, swallowing, mixing with your drinks, having a drink of alcohol-infused with THC, that's a double whammy. If you're not careful, you want to make sure you know what you're drinking and what's in it, how much THC is in it, and so on. Be more careful, right? So the labels are not to deter people from drinking. The labels are to make sure people understand what they're, that what they're drinking may have negative consequences. However, you know, use at your own risk. You know, if you read the labels on a package of cigarettes these days, it's enough to deter anyone from smoking cigarettes. However, tons of people still do. You know, a lot of people just get rid of the package and they put their cigarettes in some other kind of container so they don't have to look at those disgusting, you know, packaging uh, pictures that you see of people dying and lungs that are diseased and, you know, elderly people, you know, die, you know, in a, in a hospital bed or young people or a fetus that doesn't look healthy. Like, they, they get the message across. The same should be done with alcohol. I'm not, sure, I'm not suggesting they need to scare you away from using it. That's not the intention. The intention is to help people understand how much alcohol they're consuming and what the downsize, downside excuse me, of that consumption could lead to. We'll be right back. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. If you're just tuning in, you are on the road to recovery, and you are listening to Yona Bud, your host this evening here at 640 Toronto, and we are talking about a whole bunch of stuff, but right now we're talking about Allergy medications, yeah, simple things like Benadryl. Ever, ever taken Benadryl for uh, any kind of, uh, 
you know, itch or rash or something. Certainly I do. Well, Benadryl, as uh, we're understanding here as an allergy medication and just an over-the-counter um, medication, um, is having an impact in the studies revolve, in revolving around uh, people that have overdose Drug overdose deaths, frankly, it's an American study um, as, it relate, as it relates to tainted opioids. Um, and what we're finding is that the, the Benadryl or the, uh, medica- the, the medication itself, the uh, actual, uh, I think it's what's the, the actual drug itself is found as part of what's cut into some of the street drugs along with fentanyl, as we know. We've been talking about that a long time. But somehow that combination uh, is causing a, a lot of people concern, those that are looking at it, trying to understand that more than 71% of the deaths included uh, a Benadryl, according to the study published uh, in the agency's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. This is according to the CDC in the United States. And we're talking about um, a, a drug here that is um, uh, dafenhydramine. Dafenhydramine is like, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a... Uh, an anti, it's an antihistamine for sure, right? So it's a good wake-up call to continue checking uh, other potential drug combinations. We're trying to figure out what all this means and how sedating antihistamines like Benadryl and such are exasperating um, the opioid-induced uh, respiratory depression, which is causing a lot of people to die. Um, that's one of the reasons why people don't come back sometimes is because they can't breathe, right? And it's a, a real issue. So we have an expert with us this evening. His name is Dr. Michael uh, Ritter, and Reeder, excuse me, and he's a professor with the Department of Pediatrics, Physiology, Pharmacology, and Medicine at the Schulich Medicine, Schulich Medicine and Dentistry School at Western University. Um, excellent school, and thank you so much, doctor, for joining us this evening. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. You know, I've been at this game uh, a bunch of decades already, uh, and, I, you know, I wake up sometimes and I shake my head and go, really? Like, what's next? Um, this is kind of new to me, uh, but maybe clearly not for you. Tell me a little bit about this, why people are so concerned. Certainly CDC is quite concerned about the interaction with uh, um, Benadryl, as, you know, the, the, the brand name Benadryl and um, opioids and such and tainted opioids. Sure. Well, first of all, let's have a look at what the paper was done. So basically three very smart people from the CDC's Office of Overdose Prevention uh, did a study looking at 44 different states in the District of Columbia, and they looked at toxicology data from autopsies. So they're looking at what you find in the blood of someone who's died of a drug overdose. And they found that, much to their surprise, I think, um, much to a lot of people's surprise, that 15% of the deaths in the years 2019-2020, uh, and this is a lot, it's a big study, it's like 13, 13, almost 14,000 people yeah. had antihistamines, uh, antihistamines involved in their, were found in their blood. So that raises the question of where did it come from? So really, because you're looking at post-mortem blood, it came from one of two places. Either it was in the drug they took, or they took it separately. I think probably it's, it may be a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, because the thing is, is that if you take some of the drugs, these are taking opiates, and sometimes in addition to the effect of opiates being, being euphoria, like giving you the, the high you want, they have some side effects, too. Some people, when they take opiates and high doses, get a bit itchy. Yep. It's possible some of these people actually took antihistamines because they were having some symptoms that they didn't like in addition to getting high, and that was the problem. The other thing is, of course, contamination. Um, and the issue with that is, is that 
when you're looking at contamination, because, you know, I've been, I've, uh, been involved, you know, um, as an expert looking at various drug overdose deaths for more than 10 years, and it's just, it never ceases to amaze me what people cut drugs with. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you can cut drugs with a bunch of different things. There was a really interesting study in Canada a uh, uh, couple of years ago looking at adulterants in Canada, and they did find that in about 15%, and it varies from place to place across the country. Interesting enough, I don't know why this is, Quebec has the highest rate of adulteration with, with diphenhydramine and Benadryl, and it was about 15% of the, of the drugs that they tested. And this was a different study, because this study actually involved looking at um, samples that the police had seized. So it wasn't actually the drug in the person. It was the drug that they, the, the, the powder or uh, whatever else they had. Is so that because, is, 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 let me cut you off here for just a second. Is that because there's a similar um, buzz from Benadryl to, let's say, in the old days, heroin now, whatever, uh, some form of opioid? Um, is, is it, or is one balancing the other? Like an antihistamine is, is kind of a downer, though, isn't it? It goes along with the, right. the down that you get from the, from the opioid. Yeah, well, it depends what you're doing. So the study looked at, it was interesting, the Canadian study looked at, at uh, different, different kinds of, of, of substances. And what yep. they found was um, the, the most common thing, thing that was being used to, to adulterate with was actually stimulants, like cocaine and methamphetamine. And in that sense, it may be done as a bit of a way to sort of you know, put a, take a bit of, uh, off the edge off when you're taking it, make you not quite, give, make you not quite as, as anxious or jittery. So that was possible as well. But the other thing is, you know, with all due respect to the, you know, the drug dealers of the Western world, they're not exactly... Ace chemists mostly, and I, it's just amazing the stuff that people put in put into these combos. I mean, about um, four or five years ago, there was a, uh, a whole bunch of people getting levamisole, which is a drug that's used to treat worms. I don't know why yeah. you put that mix that was with with with, with uh, heroin that people were. And what what we've been seeing increasingly uh, across the country is a talabam, which is it's a it's a it's a benzodiazepine, it's a drug like Valium, not sold in Canada. But being mixed with being mixed with uh, fentanyl or other opiates um, as as a cutting agent, so it's it's, con- it's all over the place is what people use. I suspect, you know, given the, our data and given you know given the CDC's data, most of this is probably as a cutting agent. So people are actually mixing with it, and it could be done to actually uh, to actually increase you know give you a bit of a different different you know uh, rela- relaxation effect because it does make you drowsy and sleepy. Now, the, here's the problem. The problem is, is that our paramedics and our merge docs are good at treating opioid overdoses, sadly, because there's so many of them. Yeah. And the standard, so the standard treatment is maintain the airway, maintain, maintain the breathing, and give naloxone, because naloxone is a very specific a- a- antidote for opiates. Now, here's the thing. There is no antidote for antihistamines. So the effect, and you can get respiratory depression or, or just decreased breathing, Prominent histamine, especially in combination with an opiate. So when the paramedic crew responds and they roll up and they use and they use the, the naloxone, they may not give the give all the effect they wanted because some of that effect is not because of the opiate. And naloxone does nothing for antihistamine induced effects. So that's a problem because then you may wind up, you know, you're giving best available treatment for opiates, not working as well as you'd like, and that's because it's not just opiates. 
So the the whole the whole the, the whole concept of tainted drugs, you know, cut street drugs. I mean, it's not new, and like you said, they're no. they're clearly they're clearly not rocket scientists. These guys and people that are doing it, um, definitely not lab lab trained for sure. Uh, and and you know there you know there's clearly got to be just some stupidity and mistakes where they thought it was something that they were cutting with and they cut with something else. You know, in the old days, they, they cut cocaine with, uh, b- you know, baby laxative and such, right? Um, right? Now they're using cocaine as a cut to take the edge off the of, off the fentanyl so no one dies from it immediately. Uh, you right. know, where, where do, like, how do we, how do you as an expert, and, you know, certainly I, I you know, I'm not involved in the pharmacology part and much more involved, obviously, in the therapy side, but from the, from, you know, someone with your depth and expertise, you just can't get ahead of it, can you? No, it's very hard to get ahead. It, it, it's the problem we have with the illegal drug market is it, it is virtually impossible to stay ahead of it. I mean, if you want a good example, look at the cannabis market. Because, you know, we're, we're on the stage now of reviewing the cannabis legislation. And one of the goals when the cannabis legislation came out, which was a good goal, was to reduce the illegal market. Well, right now, for every dollar we spend on legal cannabis in Canada, we spend $2 on illegal cannabis. Because the illegal market has caught up, and they said, so they're making, they're making cannabis that is cheaper and more potent than you can get in the cannabis store. So, you know, it's a very dynamic market. It's moving all the time. And... And that's part of the problem. So, you know, when you're, and, and one of the issues we have nowadays with, is, is whole fentanyl, carfentanyl. Because, I mean, I can understand why if you're selling illegal drugs, you'd want to go to fentanyl or carfentanyl because it's just much easier to get. Because the problem is if, you, if you're shipping heroin, you know, an opiate in bulk, say to the port of Vancouver, well, the, you know, the, counter, 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 the, uh, the, the border security people have these scanners that way they scan all the cargo, and they will often pick up opiates. Fentanyl is so concentrated, you can put it in two Ziploc bags and mail it. So nobody's checking yeah. letters coming to the country. So you get this, this little bag with fentanyl in it, and it's really potent, so you've got to dilute it with something. So, you know, again, we're not talking here people that are expertise, so they're diluting with something, and, you know, and mistakes happen. The other thing is urban myths, because people have misconceptions about what some drugs do. The classic example is, is Visine, right? So The Wedding Crashers, which I quite liked, actually, is a movie, 2005. Wilson, et cetera. But they talk about putting Visine and causing diarrhea. Well, Visine does not cause diarrhea. Visine, however, can, cause, can make you really sick and, and it's been known to kill people. As a matter of fact, in North Carolina last year, there was a, actually two years ago, there was a woman convicted of killing her husband by putting Visine in his food. So it's tetrahydrazolium is the, is the actual active drug, and it can cause a uh, number of effects, including uh, low blood pressure and affecting your respiration and your heart rate. So that's an urban myth that's out there. So I don't know how many people have been harmed by people putting Visine, thinking it's a prank, but it's actually not, not such a harmless drug. So there is a lot of urban myth out there as to what people can get. So I think it's a combination of ignorance, urban myth, and the other thing, of course, is no quality control. Because who knows what you've got? I mean, you just have to take the word for what the person's using. But what the guy says you're getting, unless you get a test kit with you. When you listen, hang tough if you can. I, I know you're going to stick with us for Will the do. next segment. Uh, this is this Absolutely. is just really enlightening and, and great information. Uh, as soon as we come back here from break, we'll be back with Dr. Uh, Michael uh, Reeder and uh, talk some more about uh, tainted drugs in general. You're listening to Yonabud here, Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto.
And welcome back here on The Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Budd. I'm your host this evening here at 640 Toronto, and I'm, you're joining me with my guest, Dr. Michael Reeder. He's a professor of uh, with the Department of Pediatrics, Physiology, Pharmacology, and Medicine at Shilich Medicine and Dentistry School at Western University. Boy, that's a lot of stuff you're involved with there, doctor. Yeah, I have a busy life. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> exciting guy. Uh, listen, I... I Coming back to the whole testing thing for a second, uh, you know, there you said to me, you know, you know, nobody really knows what they're getting until they get it, uh, because drug dealers tell you you're getting one thing, you're getting another. Um, you know, right. I've been trying to advocate. I've been trying to advocate for a long time. Um, you know, even when we were starting to talk about um, safe injection sites and such, that you know, if if we could put out a simple little test kit for people, um, it wouldn't necessarily change whether they use the drug or not, but they might be kind of a give them a heads up as to what might be in it. Um, Anything kind of kind of come your way, or you and your colleagues ever kind of look at that as a potential well, solution to some of this some of this mess out there? I mean, it's a good it's a it's a good suggestion, especially because if you look at the recent data, uh, it varies from place to place in Canada. But if you look at at the BC, if you look at people who have fentanyl overdoses and survive, about sixty percent of them didn't know they were taking fentanyl. They, t- they knew they were taking something, they didn't know it was fentanyl. So the question is, could you have some kind of simple test kit? And actually, that would be a utility for a lot of other things. So, for instance, our ambulance crews would be nice to, if they could do a quick blood test, a quick, like a, like a quick COVID test, but maybe faster. Yes, this person has fentanyl. No, they don't, et cetera. Uh, the limitation with it is, is that the assay, you, can't, you have these immunoassay kits that you can do. And I know yeah. this because our lab has developed a couple of kits, not for, not for opiates, but for other, other things. And they're useful and they're fast, but the problem is, the way they develop is very specific. So they pick up what you're looking for, but not anything else. So the challenge we have in, is, as we talked to you mentioned before, and you're right, is, is that the market moves all the time, right? So, so when new contaminants come out, you don't, you don't know about it until somebody detects it. So, you know, you could do it, um, and it's, it's, tech, it's definitely technically possible. The challenge is what you're looking for because the kits are, so, are very specific. And, you know, can you develop a kit that, you know, can look for all things? Not easily uh we're not yeah. yet at the star trek tricorder phase um but uh, you could do it but you'd have to think, think about what you're what you're trying to look for so as an example no. if you're, develop, you're developing a kit for opiates you know two years ago you wouldn't have thought to look for antihistamines um yeah yet, the one i have right now doesn't look for it the one i have uh, that i use now with my patients uh for any of our urinalysis does not show for it no no and same thing as the, as a uh, well, like, and the other thing that we're seeing a lot in our region, talking to our colleagues in the police, is, is, uh, is a Telwam, which is, which is a drug like Valium. It's the benzodiazepine. It's not even sold in Canada. It's only sold in India, Japan, and Australia. But people are using it to cut opiates with it. But no, we, there's no assay for it right now that's available at the field. I mean, if you go, some, you know, if you look, for instance, the chief coroner's office in Toronto, you know, they've got a very sophisticated lab. They find it. But of course, by then, time they find it, it's a little bit too late. Um, so, so it is a bit of a challenge because of the stuff that gets put in. And some of it happens, you know, because of trends, and some of it seems to happen on a whim. So it's a challenge. I think our technology is, is – our technology for the things we know about is pretty good. It's the unknowns that, that get us. Yeah, you know, I did um, – I had I have a, had about 100 of these – fentanyl test strips and I was giving them out to people uh, some of the street work I was doing kind of during the middle of the pandemic and uh, you know some people used them some people didn't use them and and I a lot of people a lot of the street folks that I 
have contact with would say to me, listen, Yona, I know I'm, I'm, I know I'm using fentanyl. I just have to know where the hot spot is, right? So, um, some, some well, you know, well, uh, experienced, um, you know, heroin addicts, now opiate addicts or whatever they're getting, they think whatever, you know, they know that one tenth, two tenths of the syringes, their normal, their normal jolt, if you're their normal shot. Now with fentanyl mixed in, half of that, you know, a third of that might be enough to kill them. And, and that's, I think, you know, there are people that are using it unknowingly, um, but are experienced users. And then there's people that are getting something off the street for a weekend good time and, and end up in the coroner's office because they don't know what they're doing. I guess the bottom line is, and I've told somebody this on Friday, I said it's just not a good time to be a street drug user. Uh, and I guess this ties this ties into the whole concept potentially of of uh, legalizing this stuff and or at least making it available in a safe safe environment. How do you and your colleagues feel about that? I mean, I, I may be a bit political, but you know, well, how do you feel about that in terms of where you're coming from from what you see? I mean, I think it's an interesting challenge because I think we'd have to have. Some, I mean, there's no question that there, that uh, you know, if you look at places like you know British Columbia and other places that have tried safe injection sites. If people have advocated that's that's a uh, really a, the best approach. I think it needs to be a little more holistic. I think you know if you look at the people who are using or street users, yeah, they have addiction disorder. That's not their only problem. I mean, right. you know, there's all a whole lot of mental health stuff that rolled into that. Um, you know, uh, addiction is addiction doesn't you know spring from the ground like like from a dragon's tooth. It comes from a bunch of different sources. And I think part of the issue with with the safe injection sites is I think we need to have a more holistic strategy, which includes things like thinking about housing and thinking about mental health and thinking about some other things. And it's, it's an awkward problem because, you know, um, not everybody who has a mental health problem necessarily wants to be treated. And that is, that becomes an issue. I mean, you know, we can see tragic things happen like the unfortunate incident in Vancouver this week uh, with the uh, person who clearly had a lot of mental health problems and the young RCMP constable who got killed. So I mean I think there I think it's a it's a multifaceted problem I think we shouldn't ignore mental health in this, um, you know I, I think you know getting the road to rehabilitation is, is getting the road to rehab is an important one, um, and you know the journey for an addict is a tough one I mean I come from a family that has a lot of addicts in it so I know how difficult that is, um, you know in, in terms of you know getting getting on the right getting back on, on the right path and staying there because you're never you're never there's no such thing as an ex addict you're just an addict who's not using exactly. So, you know, so I think, and staying, and, and, you know, being the not using, you know, getting your pin and, and keeping the not using, you know, that's a hard struggle. I think it's a lot harder than people who, who don't, I think for people who aren't addicts, they don't realize how hard it is for an addict to stay on that path. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think you realize how difficult and how brave they are to do that. So yeah, I, I, ref- I refer to my patients as like SEAL team warriors, you know, like people don't understand yeah. how difficult, like exactly, they hear you say that is is very warming, you know. Um, listen, we, we got. You know, I could stay on the phone with you, or stay on the radio here with you forever, uh, and we'll definitely, hopefully, hook up again and do this some more. But sure. I want to get to some some other stuff if we could just help our listeners just a little bit. Uh, give me an idea of some uh, a doctor, some of the other substances like you know one one would say I, listen i know people that take benadryl instead of opioids specifically to deal with the buzz and the, and the pain of not right. using and to hide from their mental right. health for sure but, but what substances are out there that people don't realize they seem innocent but act they interact in different ways so i know that marijuana for example everybody's keen on marijuana but do they understand that there's some interaction with weed that sometimes isn't good yeah well absolutely you can get you can definitely get that especially 
Um, the, the, the report I talked about adulteration showed there's some there's some synthetic forms of weed out there that people are are putting into into opiates that actually really potentiate the opiate effect, which is a big problem. So I think right. you know if you're going to use opiates together with cannabis, that's some that's a combination. You know that's not a good combination. Um, some people will you know it's like it's like a combination. Of, uh, it's like you know Red Bull, alcohol and caffeine is a bad combo because. Yeah. With alcohol, if you drink enough, normally the protective mechanism is you go to sleep. With caffeine, you stay awake long enough to take enough alcohol to kill yourself because you certainly can't do it. Interestingly enough, one of the other contaminants we've seen in Canada in, 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 in some of the stimulants actually is caffeine. So there are people, so some of the adulterants are, are putting caffeine into it. So you know anything that kind of alters your level of consciousness, whether it's caffeine, things like caffeine to bring it up, or things like uh, you know, Valium, uh, cannabis, other things to bring it down, are things to be avoided if you're going to be in that situation. So, I mean, people have been using it, but the other thing, again, getting to the issue that the U.S. identified was, often you don't know what's there, because, you know, if yeah. someone chooses to, you know, ask throw some caffeine into your into your uh, methamphetamine or caffeine into your fentanyl, you don't know that, uh, but yet it's there and giving you uh, giving adverse effects, which really confuses the emergency res- responders, and sometimes it makes treatment less effective. I guess that's true, and when, when, I've been at enough sites, and I'm sure you've been around in the merge and such, seen it too. When someone comes in or in the you know the back alley, and they're they're, they're in the midst of an overdose um, or a reaction that appears to be an overdose, uh, and you and, and then the first thing you say to their buddies is, you know, is okay. So what did they take? Uh, but if they don't know the answer to what they took, uh, it makes you know, like you say, it makes it very difficult to yeah. to treat them, right? Um, and uh, yeah. It's, it's yeah, this is like really so. Doctor, like, what's what are the takeaways you think? We got about a minute or so left here. What what are the, what are your takeaways from this study? I mean, it's a good study. It shows a lot of information. Yeah. What do people do with that now? Well, I think first of all, I think for our first responders, it, it gives a clue as to why that patient may not be responding the way you want. So okay. you know, do you have to you know keep keep them breathing a little longer? Look for other substances. You know. Try a little harder. I mean, because you know, it, it, if your naloxone naloxone's not working, maybe it's thought that it isn't going to work. There's something else going on. So, a good lesson for our first responders and our emergency personnel. Second, I think, um, you know, I think if I think for our community of people that are street users, I think it does say the message that don't use others. I mean, don't go beyond. You know, there's stuff you should avoid. Uh, and you know, I know if you're going to use it, you use an opiate, and you think it's an opiate, it may not be an opiate. But for God's sake, don't use anything else. So I think there's a message to our street users, and I think there's a message to our, our policymakers. Listen, this is an evaluate. Things are moving along. You know, we're not doing our, you know, we are, you know, opiates and, and overdoses are killing more people in Canada than COVID ever will. Uh, let's try to get ahead of this and, and think of some strategies that are likely to work. Uh, and I know the healthcare system is in a crisis, but maybe this, maybe a crisis creates an opportunity. So I think it's, an, it's a message for across society, our first responders, our street users, and our politicians. You know, this is a, is there something we can do to get away from this? I'm talking to Dr. Michael Reeder. Uh, he's a professor with the Department of Pediatrics, Physiology, Pharmacology, and Medicine at the Schulich Medicine and Dentistry School at Western University. Definitely get him on here again. Thanks for your time, doctor. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Any experiences with road rage? You ever been in a situation where you or someone else maybe was the rager or someone was raging against you? I remember 
not long ago, a year, maybe two and a half years ago, I was coming home from the, before the pandemic, just before the pandemic, actually just before I was fired. Uh, I was at another network and uh, coming home late at night after finishing our show. My wife was with me and we were coming up the Don Valley Parkway, um, I don't know, about 1130 quarter to midnight. And uh, I guess I maybe changed lanes in the wrong way or didn't signal properly. Anyway, I somehow annoyed some driver and his buddy. Uh, who were racing up the Don Valley and continued to follow us, um, uh, you know, continuing to to, uh, to to follow us all the way up the up up the up the uh, the, the Don Valley, um, trying to get in front of us, trying to get behind us. I couldn't get their license plate because it was dark, and I, the way my cars sit up, was, I, I have an SUV, so I was up higher than the small vehicle that they were driving in. Anyway, they chased us right off the Don Valley, as I got off on steels, they chased us along steels, got out of their car, started pounding a, uh, started pounding a, on my door, on my window, trying to get in the car. I had 911 on the phone uh, the entire time up the Don Valley, so they were keeping track, trying to get an officer to me. I ended up had to, um, um, and I, I, I don't, you know, I, I ended up being um, stuck um you know, I had to go over. I had to go over a sidewalk, up, up over a sidewalk, around a median. It was, it was, wasn't cool. Uh, we weren't able to, um, to, uh, to get away. But we finally managed to turn around. By the time the police got there, they called. They moved away too. Um, I had obviously some weapons in my car for whatever reason and uh, chose not to deploy any of them. Uh, my wife was with me. I just wanted to get out of there. But some crazy stuff's going on, right? Some crazy stuff going on uh, out there and um, having a having a problem, right? We're, we're having a problem uh, with the way people talk to one another and it's, it, it becomes an issue, right? It just becomes a big issue uh, with the fact that um, uh, we're not able to... Uh, to keep ourselves together, to keep ourselves in check. Like, I don't get it. I just don't get why, why we're just keep, can't keep ourselves together, right? Um, anyway, so you got to be so careful out there, right? You know, it's, it's, it's just, you got to be careful. Listen to this. On Friday, this guy, on Friday, Magda Sozda, uh, as a floor started out like every other day at the shop, but then she received a phone call no wife ever wants to receive. She says, I got a strange phone call from one of my neighbors saying that Justin, her husband, had been run over. Stoza told Global News one afternoon in front of her building. Moments before her call, her husband, Justin Smith, was at the Westway Plaza near Kipling and Dixon, picking up chicken burgers and french fries for her and their two young boys. He spotted a car parked in a fire route. Smith says he told the driver he should probably move his car, then got into his own car to drive home. He says the driver didn't say anything to me, he told Global News, so I really didn't think anything of it. But the driver began to follow him, he says, pulling up beside him at an intersection and um, uh, where, he, where they exchanged heated words, then following Smith to his apartment parking lot. So he kind of knew something was on, he says, going to Smith, but he knew it wasn't going to end nicely. So he tried to enter his building on foot through the front entrance where there might be more witnesses in case of anything, in case anything went down. But the driver, undeterred, stepped on the gas and sped towards him. I just had this thought of, oh, I'm going to, it's going to go around me. He's not going to hit me. He's going too fast. It's literally, he was going just so fast. There's no way he was going to hit me. 
I remember hearing the engine rev and him coming into me, but even at that millisecond before the car created the impact, you just don't believe someone's actually going to drive a car right into you. Not sure what's going on. He grabbed his leg in the moment and realized his whole shin was flattened. It was just chaos, blood-curdling screams. It was the most intense, excruciating pain I've ever experienced in my life, Smith says. The driver with a cracked windshield fled to the scene. Fled the scene. Smith was sent to hospital with severe injuries, including to his leg and wrist. Doctors, he said, told him recovery would take up to nine months, and he may never walk normally again. He just told the guy, maybe you should move your car. You're in a fire, a fire zone. That's all he did, right? A massive blow to his family because of the full-time Canada Post mail carrier and his part-time Uber driver is the primary breadwinner of the household. Toronto Police Service say they're now investigating the incident as an assault with a weapon, the weapon being the vehicle, and are looking for two suspects, a black male, a driver, and a white black male who was the driver, a white female who was in the front passenger seat of the car. Police described the car as a silver four-door Honda Civic. There's a video online that you could see. If there's something there that you see that you think you can be helpful in the investigation, please reach out to Metro Police or Crime Stoppers, as it should be. We're having some difficulties finding Sean, uh, our police officer friend, uh, so we're just going to continue the segment um, with talking about the things around road rage that we really need to talk about, whether uh, we have a cop on with us or not. And really what we need to talk about is, you know, how does it get the best of us? You know, I have, a, I have a patient who I've been chatting with lately, and we've been talking about some of the things that really irk him uh, and cause them to want to drink and use drugs and, you know, live an unhealthy life and, you know, kind of numb the pain. And one of the things he talks about is, you know, bad drivers. And, you know, what I said to him is, you know what? Like, it's not your job. <laughs> like, it's not your job to to manage bad drivers. It's not your job to try and uh, right the wrongs of the people that are out there. That's the job of police. That's the job of professionals. So you're best to stay away from stuff. You know what I do when people are flying by me? I slow down. I let them go. I chill. I don't get upset. I don't worry about it. I just guess in my own mind, it's just a question of time before that person is going to end up either dead or killing somebody else or both. It's not funny. It's a real issue. And we have to understand that road rage is something that will, will, will be, you know, um, it's, it's not going away anytime soon. I remember, you know, back in the day when I didn't have my life together, I'd chase guys up the road because they'd cut me off, honking my horns, you know, waving my hands. But that's before people carried guns and got out of the car and stabbed you with a knife or hit you over the head with a baseball bat. That's what we're dealing with now. We're dealing with people who are out of control. And then because they're so out of control, they they get angry with us because we get angry with them. Next thing you know, you're in a really bad spot. When we come back from break, I'm going to tell you how bad that spot gets for somebody. And we're going to continue here on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Listening to Yona Bud here at 640 Toronto. Thank you for joining us. If you need to reach me at any time, you can reach me at 877 777 
5808-877-777-5808. I'm free to chat with you about things you need some help with. I'm free to come and speak at one of your engagements or something. Just feel free to reach out. We'll help in whatever way that we can. Um, we're going back to this discussion about road rage. Um, and I want to, I want to read you something here and then we're going to play you a clip. Uh, but the police are searching for suspect after shots fired during Highway 401 road rage incident. Police are searching for a driver who allegedly opened fire on the Highway 401 Wednesday morning during an alleged case of road rage that resulted in a Pickering Elementary School being placed in hold and secure. The incident happened around 9.30 a.m. Not any late-night stuff, folks. This is first thing in the morning in the eastbound collecting lanes near Kennedy Road. God, I go by there all the time. According to Sergeant Kerry Smith of the OPP, who's their spokesperson, the victim said the driver of a black BMW X5 rolled down the window. Then they reportedly saw a gun and heard a shot fired, he said. No injuries have been reported. We're following up on information on that suspect. Parts of the 401 and 404 near the Don Valley uh, were close um, earlier the day for about an hour as police investigated. Highways reopened shortly after 1 o'clock. Durham police have confirmed to CP, uh, to the uh, uh, news bureau that their investigation into the shooting led them to a house in Pickering on Glengrove which is in Kingston and Liverpool Rose. The part of the investigation resulted in the neighboring Glengrove Public School being temporarily placed on hold. The order was lifted at 1 o'clock. No confirmation at this point if any arrests have been made. If you know anything about this, contact the OPP at 416-235-4981 or Crime Stoppers. You can do that anonymously, 416-222-TIPS or 8477 or online www.222tips.com if you've seen anything like that. But I'll tell you, listen, man, you got to be careful out there, right? We can't, it's not like the old days where you could throw up a finger and, you know, you kind of just threw words through a window and people moved on. People out there have guns. They got weapons and stuff. And, you know, if they're upset with you, they're going to vent their frustration in a very real way, in a very dangerous way. And it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. Right? Did a police officer ever witness something that you saw and then drove right by? That would certainly annoy you, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that cause you great aggravation if something horrible happened on the road and there was a cop around and they just went by you? Well, I had a long conversation, actually not so long, maybe a 12-minute conversation at the Indy uh, not that long ago with my friend uh, Sean Shapiro. We talked about Ray Rage. Have a listen. If you're so angry, and a lot of people say I get angry when people do something to me or they cut me off that makes me angry. Is that rage or is that somewhere in between? And when, when do you truly call it rage? When your anger is out of control. When, you, when you're no longer making when rational it's, when decisions. It's no, when it's no longer about your anger and it's more about taking out your anger on others. So as that rage builds, your desire to cause harm, your desire to get your point across, your desire to show that you're superior on the road is overtaken, is, is now caught up in your rage moment. It's not logical thinking, right? You got two little kids in the back or your wife or your buddies or whatever, clearly maybe a box of beer because you're on your way to the cottage. You know, if you think about that, it's not a smart time to be acting out on a highway, especially today with the kind of laws that we have. 
Well, there you go. We had a little segment there. He and I met at the. Uh, we did a. We did a, a segment for his uh, podcast. Podcast, the Toronto uh, uh, traffic uh, podcast. It was cool though. We did it down at the uh, at the Indy, as I said. Um, I was sitting on top of a large OPP um, Harley Davidson road cruiser motorcycle. They're they're gorgeous. They're just they're beautiful. If you like motorcycles, they're gorgeous. Um, I'll be honest, though, I tried to get on it by myself, and I couldn't. I needed help. Someone had to help me get my leg on, and Sean had to help me get my leg off. But it was fun, and we talked a lot about uh, road rage. And, and I want to share some more with you about some of that stuff. If you find yourself in a situation where someone is aggravating you or annoying you or just causing you to feel angry, and you're in a car, and they're in a car, recognize that you're now driving a lethal weapon. So are they. We saw how it almost killed someone. They ran the guy over. And how it can be used as a turret or an opportunity to launch a weapon from while you're on the highway in a vehicle. It's not worth it, my friends. I love you guys. It's just not worth it. It's not worth getting aggravated or getting hurt or putting yourself or your family at risk. I mean, you see people raging with children in the back seat. Like, seriously? You need to step back. You need to breathe. You need to recognize it's not your battle. So they cut you off, or they took the lane, or they took your parking spot. So what? Move on. You have to prove that you are the superior one. You have to be the the road cop. It's not your job. Unless you're being paid to be a cop, don't be a cop. I tell people all the time, unless you're being paid to be a therapist, don't be a therapist. Don't pretend to be something you're not. Just move on. you got to let the ragers rage by you, not rage to you or with you. Don't get caught up in their nonsense. You're not them. Whatever they've got going on has nothing to do with you. You can only imagine that some guy or some woman left the home, left their home in an upset mood before they were on their way to work in the morning, and the first person on the highway that looked at them sideways that maybe even looked like their wife or their husband is going to bear the brunt of it. It's going to bear the brunt of this road rage attack. So how do you manage it? You just let them go by. I'll tell you, when I get on the highway, I was telling somebody the other day, when I get a, I have a, a, a coaching company, a company I provide coaching for, and every couple of weeks I've got to get down to the bottom of the Don Valley Parkway. I live in Thornhill. <clears throat> so it's a trip down the Don Valley Parkway, the 404 and the Down Valley Parkway. So I prepare for it, right? I prepare for it. I have a bag of food with me. I have some snacks. I have some, you know, some treats. I got something to drink. I got my CBD beside me. I got at least a half a dozen people I can call. Right? There's people I can call. I've set up, I set up that I'm going to call you sometime between eight and nine thirty. So I, I, I give myself ninety minutes for less than a sixty minute drive. So if something goes sideways, I'm not, I'm not all messed up. I let the world go by me. I'm that guy in the, in the, in the, in the slow lane. That just lets everyone go by me. I'm the guy you honk at because I should be moving faster. You know what? Never mind how fast I should go. You just focus on how fast you should go. This stuff is serious, my dear friends. You got to pay attention to it. You got to keep yourself together. Keep yourself calm. Let your children see. Oh, my gosh. You see parents on their way to school with their children in the back seat, maybe carpooling, honking and, and, and raging at the people in the parking lot trying to get their kids in and out of school. Your kids are going to do that, too. That's what you do. That's what they're going to do. 
So be, be careful. Pay attention. It's not worth it. Take a breath. It's only going to take another minute or two to let the idiots go by. You'll get there safely with a lot less agita, as my friends would say, my Italian friends, aggravation and heartburn, and with a little bit more skill and strategy and a little less aggravation and stomachache. So listen, be good to each other, right? Hug the one you're with. Love the one you're with. Tell them so. Give your kids a hug and a kiss. And like my mom used to say, may she rest in peace. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Get out there and spread nice. I'm Yona Bud. You're on the road to recovery. This is 640 Toronto.